When Lynn Yackel entered the race for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania in 1992, 1% of the people in the state knew who she was. Nine months later, 2.2 million people voted for her. Yackel ran against incumbent Republican Senator Arlen Specter, was outspent two to one, and lost one of the closest elections of 1992 by only two percentage points. Many people called it the year of the woman in politics, and there were a record number of women candidates last year. 106 women from 35 states ran for the House of Representatives and 11 women from 10 states for the U.S. Senate. 53 women won election to Congress, nearly doubling the earlier number. Still just 10% of the members of Congress are women. For some, the question now is, what now? It appears for today's speaker the answer is clear. Lynn Yackel says by running in 1992, she risked her reputation, her job, her time, money, and her family. But having taken all those risks and landed on her feet, Yackel now says there's no going back. It was only last year that Lynn Yackel became a nationally known figure. But prior to entering the Senate race, she spent more than 20 years devoted to public service in the private sector. As president of Women's Way USA, the first and largest women's funding federation in the country, Yackel helped organize a coalition of 17 women's funds in 14 states. Today's speech by Lynn Yackel is entitled, Women as Leaders, Changing the Paradigm. We welcome Lynn Yackel. Thank you, Kate, for that very nice introduction, and thank you all for a warm Minnesota welcome. This is my second trip this year to this beautiful state, and I understand the meaning of Minnesota's motto, l'étoile du Nord. I was a French major, by the way. The exquisite quilt of forests, fields, and that unmatchable network of lakes really does create the Star of the North. From the medical miracles of the Mayo Clinic to the political legacy of Hubert Humphrey to a solid record of accomplishment in music, theater, education, and philanthropy, your state has a proud 135-year history. And speaking of philanthropy, I salute my colleagues in philanthropy at the Cooperating Fund Drive, at the National Network of Women's Funds, which is headquartered here, and at the Minnesota Women's Fund, which is co-sponsoring my appearance here today. I'm honored to be part of the distinguished roster of your voices of conscience. And I'm pleased to join the chorus of women's voices, which historically have been underrepresented in the most important levels of our national dialogue. Because the only way to change the perception that women's voices, quote, lack authority, which was a phrase used to describe mine in a national magazine, is to vest authority in women at all levels of society. Civilization depends upon the orderly transmission of values from one generation to the next. That transmission inevitably is conducted by leaders. Leaders in the home, in schools, in churches and synagogues, in businesses, in the media, in government. American women in the 1990s often are ambivalent about their roles as leaders. And when it comes to women as leaders in the public arenas of power, American society has an enormous ambivalence. It's an ambivalence which I encountered repeatedly in my Senate campaign and which is reflected in four major news stories which have appeared in the past two weeks. The first story is about a poll that reported that a majority of American women believe women's place is in the home although the reality is that a majority of American women now work outside the home. And I dare say that most of them would not give up their jobs even if they could afford to. That fact and that con sort of contrast reminds me of a survey that was done in the high school cafeteria where my children went to school a few years ago. The survey found that the students in the school had two complaints. The first complaint was that the food was terrible, and the second complaint was that the portions were too small. So all I could conclude is that the students didn't like the food, but they wanted more of it. <laughs> the second story is a cover story in the October issue of The Atlantic. 
and it's about feminism's identity crisis, the tension between being a women's rights supporter, a feminist, and being feminine. The author writes, quote, the confident political resurgence of women today will have to withstand a resurgent belief in women's vulnerabilities. While a majority of American women agree that feminism has altered their lives for the better, they hesitate to associate themselves with the movement. The third story I want to mention concerns Hillary Rodham Clinton's leadership role in developing the National Health Care Reform Plan. While a growing number of Americans appear to approve of the job that she's doing, many people clearly would prefer to see her in the traditional first lady as hostess role. And the fourth story about our national ambivalence is about the 1993 Miss America contest. I couldn't resist. In writing about the new updated Miss America, columnist Ellen Goodman says it this way, I'm glad that the woman of the 90s doesn't have to be a beauty or a brain, lovely or intellectual, but I'm pretty sure that she has to be both. For every beauty who has to prove her worth on the platform, and in the case of the new Miss America, her platform is homelessness, as well as on the runway, there is a TV correspondent or political candidate who is judged for her hairdo as much as her head. Goodman concludes, one foot on a runway and one foot on a platform. As uncomfortable with double messages as a contestant walking around in a bathing suit with three inch heels. The mixed messages that I received as a woman running for high political office were similar. On the one hand, I was expected to adhere to higher standards in my campaigning, to campaign on a different level above the normal fray, to be better than my opponent and preferably to be perfect. On the other hand, when attacked, I had people literally screaming at me to fight back, to throw the mud with the same force it was being thrown at me, to be tough. In media coverage, I was constantly judged by my appearance as well as my position papers. And after narrowly losing the election, some supporters were actually angry at me for refusing to play the politics as usual game, to make deals and promises I had no intention of keeping. As one voter said, my 11-year-old daughter was counting on you. You should have done whatever it took to get elected. Then you could do what you wanted. This is a classic blame the victim mentality, but it also raises questions about the rules of the game, which I will revisit later in these remarks. Now, I certainly don't have to tell you that Hillary Rodham Clinton has become a lightning rod for all the mixed messages and mixed feelings about women in the 90s. And while I'm not here to test her popularity or the popularity of her health care reform plan, it is difficult to deny that the issue of health care reform has been put right in the middle of the American table. And that could not have happened with timid, with timid leadership. People with ordinary motivation seldom, seldom end up influencing change. As a friend of mine is fond of saying, the meek may inherit the earth, but they are not likely to improve it. Cautious people do not get carved on Mount Rushmore. It has not escaped my notice that there are no women's faces on Mount Rushmore, not yet. And that observation brings me back to my topic, women as leaders changing the paradigm. Those of us who stepped forward last year, each acting individually without the knowledge that the others were out there, each acting out of a sense of frustration and anger with the status quo in Washington, found ourselves collectively creating the Year of the Woman, a historical sequence of events that for me often seemed like an out-of-body experience. When I entered the race for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania in early 1992, it was not because I craved political power. I had never run for office before. It was because I was displeased with the incumbent, with his performance, and I didn't see anyone in the field running against him who seemed ready to speak out for those who were not strong enough to speak for themselves. What was lacking was not only a voice of conscience, 
but also a voice of caring, a voice of commitment, and a voice of correction. I say correction because there's much to be corrected in our political value system. Some things aren't right, but they're real. It isn't right that after two centuries of this nation's history, only 10% of the congressional offices are occupied by women, and then that's after the gains of the Year of the Woman. It isn't right, but it's real. It isn't right that there are more shelters for animals in this country than there are shelters for abused women and children. That isn't right, but it's real. It isn't right that in one political campaign lasting just 10 months, my opponent and I spent more money than my organization, Women's Way, had raised in 15 years for services to hundreds of thousands of Pennsylvania families. That isn't right either, but it's real. A baseball infielder makes as much money as Women's Way allocates in a year to programs providing housing, health care, job training, child care, and emergency services for thousands of women and children in distress. Our values, our rankings of what's important, are so misplaced. That is one of the reasons I ran for the U.S. Senate, against all the odds. With no previous political experience, no organization in place, and as Kate mentioned, on my really good days in the spring of 1992, a public recognition rating that almost reached 1%. Another reason I entered the political arena was the personal value system I developed in the family in which I grew up. A family where public service was revered and was considered a high calling. The contrast between my memories of my father's 22 years in the U.S. House of Representatives and the sorry state of politics in the 1990s, where the system has become a big business that's driven by money and power and greed, and that very often attracts people who have entirely the wrong motives for, for being in there. That was a personal goal for me to begin to help change that system and to help restore integrity to public service. I learned many lessons in my Senate campaign, and some of them relate to changes we must make in our attitudes and our institutions if women are to succeed on our own terms as full participants in shaping this nation's destiny. First, women must learn to use our economic power to express our values both in giving to causes we care about and in electing people to office who will represent those values and support those causes. The women's philanthropy movement, of which the Minnesota Women's Fund and Women's Way are a part, helped lay the groundwork for the revolutionary phenomenon in women's political giving in 1992, a significant factor in the success of the Year of the Woman. The astonishing growth of EMILY's list which went from raising $1 million to $6 million in one year for women candidates, is one example. Another is my campaign. We went from $0 to $4.6 million from 52,000 individual contributors in just nine months. And I'm sure some of you are here today, and I say thank you. 75% of the donors to my campaign were women, and many were first-time political contributors. Unfortunately, money is the key to electoral politics. And while we wait for the Congress to show the courage to reform campaign financing laws, we must encourage women and men to use their economic power to make political change. One reason 93% of incumbents managed to get reelected in a year when of dissatisfaction with politics as usual was that they have an enormous fundraising advantage. My opponent set a record for a Senate campaign in Pennsylvania and spent the third largest amount in the nation, over $10 million, or more than twice what my campaign spent. And speaking of the power of incumbency, one thing that I learned was that I had picked a formidable mountain to climb uh, because it is very difficult to unseat an incumbent. And of all the women who won their races last year, only two upset incumbents. The rest won in open seats or newly created seats. 
So when I am asked by women to advise them as to whether they should enter politics, I use this analogy. If you want to take up cross-country skiing, start with a small country. <laughs> the second area we need to work on is the role of the media, whether covering social events, court trials, or political campaigns. Because the fact is that women and men are treated differently by the media. Some examples from my personal experience, and I could write a book on this subject alone. There was practically no story written about the Senate campaign in Pennsylvania that did not mention one or more of the following, my clothes, my hair, my jewelry, almost always my age. In a national magazine, my haircut was referred to as a perky Dorothy Hamill wedge. I failed to understand what that had to do with being a candidate for the United States Senate. Occasionally, the length of my skirt was mentioned, which I found to be a little uh, annoying because I never saw an article about the length of Arlen Specter's pants. <laughs> Another thing that happened to me constantly was that I was defined in relation to the men in my life. My husband's country club, my father's voting record, and comments made by the pastor of my church about Israel. One day, I woke up at last summer and I thought, good heavens, what is happening to me is what has happened to women throughout the history of this country. We have always been somebody's daughter, somebody's mother, somebody's wife, and in this case, in my case, somebody's parishioner. It is something we must be aware of and, and speak out against because I had my own track record, my own commitments, and I was the person running for the United States Senate. We also have subtle uses of language that can influence the way that we hear uh, and read about people. In one column about the women who were running for the Senate, there were cooking analogies used repeatedly. Often in the columns about my opponent, there were sports analogies used. And I remember clearly a headline that appeared just a week before the election in one of the major pa papers in Pennsylvania. And the headline said, Specter still pitching hard at bottom of the ninth. Now, that just creates all kinds of images. On a more positive note, we women who were campaigning did create some new campaign styles. Uh, one very frustrated reporter said to me one day, she couldn't fit me into a, a box that she was accustomed to in terms of dealing with candidates, and she said, you seem to be campaigning like a woman. And I said, I didn't know I had a choice. But what she meant was that we were very often uh, not accompanied by our families. At the Democratic National Convention, there was only one husband of one of the Senate candidates who was there, and he was very much in the background. We did not drag our families around. I assume that one reason that was not noted particularly is that there was an assumption that our husbands must be off doing important business somewhere. Uh, we also had an outsider image, which came very naturally from being historically outsiders in this country, and that was very positive in 1992. And I have a, another story that proves to you that little by little there is hope. Um, as I have been speaking about the subject of the role of the media and how I found myself treated differently, um, I was in uh, Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, a very rural part of the state, speaking at Susquehanna University uh, in a lecture that was sponsored by the Daily Paper. And I, when I talked about the media, I was looking at this the face of the publisher and thinking, well, I may have just alienated this entire community. But several days later, I received a very nice note from him with a copy of the story that had appeared in the paper. And it was a wonderful story. And he said in his note, please observe that we did not mention your age or your attire. So I said, there is hope. <laughs> a paradigm is a pattern, a model. What can women bring to the changing of the model? to the improvement of leadership in all pursuits of life. Whether you subscribe to the theory that women and men are born with different qualities and characteristics aside from their anatomy, or acquire those differences through socialization, it is clear that there are differences, gender differences, in leadership styles. In a study conducted by the Rutgers University Institute of Women in Politics a few years ago, they observed that women in elective office had two characteristics which set them apart. 
One was that they tended to involve more people in the decision-making process. And the other was that they tended to make decisions in public view, much more out in the open. Both of those speak to concerns that the American public has about politics. And both provide opportunities to provide citizen, to build citizen participation in the political process and to restore trust in our elected officials. I suggest that because of either perception or documentation, women are in an excellent position to introduce, nourish, or rekindle, take your pick, the concept and practice of integrity in our national and personal purpose. I saw that possibility in the faces of Pennsylvanians all during my campaign last year. Faces of hope, of optimism for the future, of looking for positive leadership. Repeatedly, people thanked me for running and told me I had given them somebody to vote for and not against. We need to build on that message. The responsibility that accompanies this opportunity for women in leadership is awesome. In the simplest of terms, it means not making compromises with our values once we've broken the glass ceiling or been elected to Congress or reached a point of high visibility. Integrity ought to mean that we tell the truth, that we neither exaggerate our successes nor minimize our setbacks. Integrity ought to mean plain talk in telling the world who we are and what we stand for. Occasionally people said to me, you don't sound like a politician. Don't become one of them. I ask, why not change the way a politician sounds? Integrity ought to mean that we never lose sight of our responsibility to the society around us. In the late 1970s, I ran into a former classmate of mine from my small women's college in Virginia, and she was an active opponent of the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, which I was actively supporting. One day I said to her, why are you opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment? And she responded, because I like being on a pedestal. I maintain that American women in the 1990s cannot afford to stand on pedestals. We must stand on principles if we are to shape the future of this nation for our children and our grandchildren. One other thing integrity ought to mean is the willingness to disagree with each other when we must, but to do it with respect, not insult. Women are no more monolithic than men, but we are in a unique position in history to change the rules of the game. We are women and men by chance. We are 20th century Americans by chance. But we are sisters and brothers and good citizens by choice. And it's time for all of us to work together for a more just and humane society. We must help each other, support each other, and open our minds to the possibilities of women at, as leaders at every level. Women leaders must lead by example. We must act and speak with competence and confidence. We must be willing to take risks, fearing neither failure nor success, learning to believe in ourselves and each other and to act like the majority we are. One of the lasting legacies of 1992, the campaigns, the elections, and the new administration is the emergence of new role models. I have two examples of this. One was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine earlier this year, and it was a picture of a little girl and boy who were playing dress up. And the little girl was saying to the little boy, okay, you can be the doctor, I'll be the Secretary of Health and Human Services. <laughs> the, the other story is personal to me, and it comes from one of the thousands of letters I received uh, during and after my campaign. This one actually came after. It came from a young mother in suburban Philadelphia who sent me a check and a note after the campaign. And she said in her note, this check is not from me, it's from my two daughters, ages 10 and 14. They believed that your campaign was their campaign. They followed it every day in the papers and on television, and they were there on election night in the hotel waiting for the results to come in, and they were there until almost mid midnight when it was clear that you had narrowly lost the election. And I was deeply concerned about how that loss was going to affect them. But the next morning, she wrote, 
I went into the kitchen, and they were having this big argument. And they were arguing about which one of them was going to run for president first. She said, thank you for giving them that vision. It's a lifelong gift. When I read that note, I knew I had done the right thing. Thank you very much. Listening to Lynn Yakel on the Westminster Town Hall Forum. The forum is co-sponsored by the Minnesota Women's Fund. We're going to move into a question and answer session now, and you will find cards that were given to you or are in front of you uh, here in the sanctuary. Please write down your questions on the cards, pass them to the aisles, and the ushers will pick them up. I invite you back to the podium for a few questions. And I would like to begin. Um, I said in my introductory comments that. Uh, you aren't stopping now, you're going to continue on your quest. Will you share with us what you can about what you know about your future plans? I would be glad to do that. I have not made a final decision, but I am considering two very different and exciting options at the moment. Um, one is I have been talking with the administration in Washington and specifically with the Health and Human Services people and Secretary Shalala about the regional director's position for the five-state mid-Atlantic region for health and human services. That is a, a strong possibility. But the other thing that I am considering, which people have been talking to me about since the very night of November the 3rd, when I was standing on the platform making my concession speech, I am considering entering the race for Pennsylvania's governorship next year. It's not an easy decision, I will add. <laughs> Do you think too much has been made of the doubling of the number of women in Congress in such a way that makes some people feel comfortable with that number? Well, I think that there are very mixed results from the year of the woman. I hope that what we, we haven't really seen the final results in that the people who came into the political process, either as first-time candidates or contributors or volunteers, will stay in the political process and help keep women, uh, help women get elected to office in the future. Um, I feel that the gains last year were significant, but certainly not significant enough for us to rest on our laurels. Uh, we have a lot of work to do, and I think it's going to require a lot of work because um, there won't be the same kinds of opportunities for challengers in general as there were last year for a number of years because we won't have a new census creating new congressional uh, districts. And that was one of the, the great open opportunities for women in 1992. Has your campaign had any noticeable effect on Arlen Specter's behavior as senator? <laughs> oh, that's a tempting question. <laughs> um, on the night of the election, uh, Arlen Specter did say that the issues that had brought my campaign forward, that had brought me into the political arena, um, had certainly taught him something, that he had learned some lessons. Uh, I'm watching. <laughs> it's nice to have a Presbyterian woman in the pulpit. Thank you for being here. Do you think the church is offering new role models of women in leadership, or is it still holding women back? Gee, what an interesting question. Well, I certainly don't think the church is holding women back. Um, I should tell you that in First of all, just again speaking from my own personal um, value system, I saw my movement and stepping forward into the political arena as a very logical extension of my community service, um, which was a logical extension of my Christian beliefs. And so to me, it's all very much connected. And the church that I belong to was tremendously supportive of me. Um, there are 3,800 members in my church. And uh, it was, there were many, many people who contributed to my campaign and who helped me. And I think that um, 
actually the church, like other institutions in our communities where we've got strong uh, networks of people, the, the churches really should play an increasing role in helping people get into public service and again accomplishing the goal of changing the political system to, to have a much solid, more solid grounding in the values that we care about. Next question. I have heard that the real reason you ran is that you were offended by Arlen Specter's grilling of Anita Hill. Would you comment? The judiciary hearings in October of 1991 definitely provided the catalyst for me. Um, I, like millions of other people, women and men across this country, was just stunned and infuriated by what I saw on television. It wasn't only the behavior of my senator from my state, which was certainly a factor, but it was the fact that there were, there was a judiciary committee that was, did not look like America, was 14 um, aging white men. And it, I was so struck <laughs> by, by that, that I thought we have to do something about this because those are the people who are making the decisions about our tax dollars, about our national priorities, about whether we're going to build more missiles or we're going to support our schools. And so that was definitely a catalyst for me. But it was not by any means the only thing. Um, I had grown up in the political family, as I mentioned, and had worked on Capitol Hill in the summers when I was in high school, was very much aware of the whole political system, had thought of running for office many times before, but because my children were home and um, my husband wasn't totally enthusiastic, to put it mildly, um, I had really just not done it. But and the powerlessness that I had felt at Women's Way, working with these wonderful people who were working to solve community problems and meet community needs without adequate resources or the access to them, those things had all accumulated. And the uh, hearings, as I say, provided that catalyst where I just said, I've got to do something about this. And many women said to me, you know, you're doing this for us. Thank you for doing this. We see ourselves in you. We felt the same way, but we didn't act. And I, I hope that energy is still out there because we're going to need it for the next round. The next question is, please explain Women's Way USA. Well, let me start by explaining Women's Way in Philadelphia, which was the organization that I helped to found and then served as president and chief executive of uh, until I won the Senate primary last year, at which point I resigned. Um, it is a federation of organizations that are providing a wide range of services to women and children. And it's job training and uh, domestic violence shelter and rape crisis counseling and health care, a wide array. Women's Way USA is a national uh, collective group of women's funds and federations uh, in 15 states. It was just formed in the fall of 1991, shortly before I took a leave, um, and so I have just really gotten back into that recently as a volunteer chair of the board. It is per particularly for raising money from individuals in the workplaces for women's funds and organizations. And the uh, arena in which Women's Way USA is currently raising money is the combined federal campaign, which is the very, very large federal employees workplace giving campaign. And so Women's Way USA is a vehicle for, for funding, for additional funding through workplace giving for women's funds and federations. We have a question from a caller. You commented on the need to change the image of politicians. The caller feels we no longer have leaders, only politicians. Would you care to comment on this concept? Well, I think it's sad that we feel that way. Um, one of the, the things that I, I was trying to um, make the point about in my remarks is that it doesn't have to be this way. We should be able to respect and appreciate the people who give their lives to serve us. And again, my model for this was the, um, my experience growing up where I saw the enormous sacrifice that my father made and our family made to have him in public life. And it, we should appreciate those people who get out there to take the risks and represent us. Unfortunately, because of the way the system has become so driven by money and, um, and so nasty in so many ways, many people simply will not run for office. And I feel we have to keep working 
to change the system so that people will run and we can elect and be proud of the leaders that we have. And we should look at our political leaders as leaders because they are making the decisions that have the largest impact on our lives. What would you say are the key differences in leadership style and role between men and women in politics? Well, I think the uh, Rutgers examples that I used are probably as, as solid as any. I do think women tend to make decisions more based on inclusion and participation um, than on winning and losing. And to, to my way of thinking, that's a very, very important characteristic to have in the political arena, because what we should be trying to do is to cross-partisan lines and to get people working together toward shared goals. Um, it's clear that the administration is, in Washington is trying to make some inroads in that, but I thought that the um, budget battle, for example, was a really good example of party lines and people just sort of um, voting along the party line. And you wonder what, what people really believe. So. I guess I think that if, if women are skilled and tend to be more apt to um, include people and therefore to have a broader-based decision-making, that might help build some coalitions and, and get beyond some of the divisions. That is a very important thing. I also do believe that this issue of making decisions in public and not having the sense that there are deals being made behind closed doors and you know smoke-filled rooms, which is, um, by the way, <laughs> that's not far from accurate, uh, as I discovered last year. There's a lot of that that goes on. But we, we need to open up the process so that we as citizens can feel comfortable and, and can trust the people who are making those decisions. And, and women, I believe, can add to that change. While, campa while campaigning, you spoke of the risks that you took. How effective are you at balancing your roles as public servant, mother, and wife? Well, again, I think um, you know that we we all have to figure out how to balance our lives, and and I, one of the challenges for women at, at this time in our history is to sort those those opportunities out and to find the ways that we can balance for ourselves personally. Uh, my children, last year when I was campaigning, were away in school. My son was finishing college, and my daughter was finishing law school. They were, in some, some cases, I was extremely glad they were both out of state, so they did not have to read the daily horrors of the campaign. Um, but so there was not an issue for them. My husband, I think, found it very difficult to be subjected to the public scrutiny and high visibility of a campaign. But he was terrific, and he, you know, we, we survived. We got through it. Um, but again, I think each of us, and, and we should ask this question of men as well, we have to be able to look at our priorities and, and to find ways to help each other um, have the fullest possible lives, develop our potentials, and not have to make, to say, well, I'm only gonna do this or I'm only gonna do this. We should be able to balance work and family, for example, um, and, and, and to live lives where we can make a contribution and not not feel guilty that we are neglecting some other part of our life. Do you support term limitations for political office holders? I do not support term limitations, um, although I'm afraid if we cannot pass campaign finance reform legislation, it may be the only way to deal with the uh, difficulty of unseating incumbents. Um, the reason I don't support term limitations is that they take away a right of the voters. And I tend not to be in favor of taking away people's rights. Um, what I would prefer to see is the voters exercise our rights to get people out of office when they should be out. And th that's how we should deal with it. What do you think will be the role of men in the 21st century? I hope, um, one of the things that I have always believed, ever since I got into working um, on behalf of women's rights and trying to, to build a society 
that was more just and, um, and more humane, certainly. I hope that men will have opportunities to live much more balanced and fulfilled lives as, as women will. If we really share our responsibilities and our roles and try to um, make it possible to balance family and work and those things, those changes should benefit men as much as they do women. And if we could get beyond this notion of being threatened or, um, or being in competition with each other, but rather look to where we can get the best mix of people to make the best possible decisions to affect our daughters and our sons. Uh, and I have one of each, and I really feel very strongly. I want both of them to have the kind of lives where they don't have to give up this for this uh, it, just because that's what society has dictated, but they can, they can work on a, a different kind of a level. And I hope that the women's movement in this country will make men much freer, ultimately. Regarding the role of the media, if they omitted comments on attire, age, etc., are there things they could have said instead to at least challenge the set of paradigms regarding men's and women's roles? What are examples of good media coverage? Uh, I would have loved to have had more attention paid to the economic plan that my campaign developed with the input from a whole array of wonderful economists. Uh, the plan was endorsed by 19 leading economists, including um, and spoken about by Nobel Prize winner Lawrence Klein, who's at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Because women are not thought of as being strong in economics, um, I had very, very little coverage of that news conference, of that plan. There was one paper that actually did a very good job with it, but in general, that was not, we just sort of couldn't seem to get over those hurdles. Um, there was good coverage of some of the debate uh, opportunities, and, and I think that the role that um, the League of Women Voters played in the debate in Pennsylvania, the citizen jury, which we had in Pennsylvania, um, is a great concept. I personally feel it could have been uh, done better, but um, it's a very good idea for getting substantive issues and positions out so that we really can look at what people stand for, what candidates have to say. Um, but I do think that, that there's more of a desire now on the part of the voters and more responsiveness on the part of the media to look at the issues. And certainly, the use of talk shows last year by the presidential candidates was a very, very positive step, I think, in giving us a, an ability to know them better as people and to know better what they stood for. Do you perceive a generation gap in feminism? This questioner says, as a 26-year-old feminist, I do. How would you propose reaching out to women under 30 in the feminist movement to empower young women to achieve their leadership potential? Well, it's interesting. I see the gap as in between the, the 20s and the 40s. Um, my daughter is uh, just turned 26, and she and her colleagues and friends, um, and the young women I have spoken to on college campuses, of which I have been on many uh, during the course of this year, have mostly seemed very much more tuned in to the uh, issues that, that have been the issues of women's equality and women's rights over the past um, few decades. So my sense is that the gap is in between more, where there were women who came along who believed that the gains had been won, that we could take these things for granted. Um, I think that the attention to the choice issue uh, in, in the last few years has certainly raised some of those questions when, when there was concern about the Supreme Court and would it reverse the earlier ruling. And so many people became politically active in, around that issue, believing that we couldn't take it for granted. I hope that the young people, men and women, um, today, in college, coming out of college, um, the, the, the new generation of leaders, will be very politically aware and very um, 
aware of where the gaps are and where we're not breaking through the glass ceiling and where we need to really push for changes. And my, sen my sense is one of optimism on that score. You mentioned that you don't want women in politics to compromise what makes them unique. Some have, some have made that claim about women who have achieved high-level positions in corporations, that they have given up what makes them different from the men who lead corporate America. How do you think women political leaders can keep themselves from not compromising those unique qualities? I think it's a very big challenge, but it's one that if we're really going to succeed um, in, in having a new kind of leadership that we have to do. And I must tell you that I am extremely proud of the new women in the Senate. And I have watched with great interest as the women I got to know very well last year in the course of the campaign um, have made some substantial and substantive uh, differences in the passage of legislation. Uh, you may have watched the recent vote where the five Democratic women senators um, actually influenced and by one vote managed to pass a uh, law or to, to um, Right, to, to pass an amendment that would include uh, all kinds of health care coverage for federal employees where there had been a proposal to eliminate um, family planning and abortion coverage. And so there, there are changes that I think we have seen women making, and, and I feel that the people who are there are trying very hard to um, live up to the expectations of, of those who sent them there. So I'm very hopeful about that as well. You lost a close race. In hindsight, what would you have done differently? Oh, there, there are many things that um, I would have done differently. I think that the, the biggest thing was I would have been better prepared for the overnight change in my life and my campaign when I won the Democratic primary. Because in many ways, the general election was determined on the morning of April the 29th, which was the morning after I won the primary in Pennsylvania. And this is what happened. First of all, overnight, I had become a, a media person. And in fact, my picture was on the front page of the International Herald Tribune. And there were people in all parts of the world whom I had known somewhere in my life who were reading this story uh, wherever they were. And so all of a sudden, there was this enormous national focus on me and on our campaign. At the same time on that morning, we had a $200,000 debt to the primary. We had no money in the bank. We had inadequate staff, inadequate office space. And my opponent, on the other hand, had $3 million in the bank. On that morning, he held a press conference in which he used the phrase single issue candidate 14 times. That instantly put us on the defensive, because all day long, as people were calling me, they were saying, well, our inspector says you're a single-issue candidate. What do you say about that? And rather than taking the proactive position and getting out there instantly to define ourselves in the campaign, um, we were put on the defensive. Now, I will tell you, from his uh, point of view, that was a brilliant strategy. It was brilliant. But I would do that differently the next time, for sure. What is the one characteristic or value about women that you suggest we change? Well, I'd like us to be less ambivalent. <laughs> I, would, um, I would like us to feel a greater sense of individual and personal self-confidence and the fact that we can do these things, but also to be much more mutually supportive of each other. One of the um, very interesting results of my narrow loss in the election last year is that many of my very close friends and supporters, uh, particularly women, were just emotionally devastated by the loss. They were terribly disappointed. And they have become sort of risk averse. And this sort of sense, well, we couldn't do it, we didn't do it, and therefore, let's go back and not make any noise and not make any waves. Um, I don't feel that way. And I don't think we can afford to feel that way. 
because uh, I, a friend, one woman friend of mine the other day was talking to me about the governor's race, and she was saying she didn't think it was a good idea, and she wasn't sure that my good friends would support me if I got out there again. And I said to her, do you think we would be having this conversation if we were men? If I had almost unseated Arl Inspector, if I had polls showing that I could w win against every candidate that's out there right now in the Republican and Democratic um, fields in Pennsylvania, would we be considering not doing this? And that definitely got her attention. But that's, that's a problem that I think we as women have. We have a very hard time with rejection and with loss. And there is a fear of failure, and there is a fear of success, which we have to overcome. We've got to be just very focused on what we can do and that we can do well, and we've got to continue to make that case for ourselves, for each other, and for all of society so that we really do have the kind of quality and diversity of leadership that we need. Would you comment on Bill Clinton's new policies, such as NAFTA, budget reduction plan, and health care plan? <laughs> now, if I, if I were really a politician, what I'd say is, well, you know, I don't really think I should comment on those things since I'm not there. <laughs> um, well, first of all, let me, let me start with the budget reduction plan. I do think it is a tr tremendous step in the right direction. I don't think it's enough, um, and I hope that we will see uh, really some serious cutting of expenditures and that we will really see, as the health care reform plan begins to take effect, um, that we will see the uh, ability to get those costs under control because we'll never reduce the national deficit if we do not get health care costs under control. That's just absolutely clear. So my sense is that the, the administration has started out with some very, very ambitious um, goals and agendas and has begun to turn the country in a dramatically new direction, uh, which I generally support. And I think we have a huge amount of um, additional work to do. On the subject of NAFTA, I um, am somewhat ambivalent uh, because I do appreciate the concern the sh about short-term job loss. I also think that we must take the bigger vision and that that's one of the things that we need more people in Washington to do, to look at the forests instead of the trees, um, to look at the longer range and at where America wants to be in a new global marketplace. And so I would definitely like to see us have a North American free trade agreement. I would like it to be, um, to have the protections in it uh, for wages and standards and environmental standards that are necessary, and I hope that we can get there uh, because I believe that for the long term, we really have to have some kind of a, um, a, a marketplace that is in our hemisphere where we've got the ability to produce and to export and to really um, create more jobs ultimately for American people. Our guest today has been Lynn Yackel, and on behalf of the Westminster Town Hall Forum, thank you for joining us. <laughs>